Tonight's shiur is um, dedicated in the Rufush Lane of Orli Rachel Bat Yehudi Ruth and Sima Bas Rivka, as well as Alina Shamot to Karen Goldman, Gito Bas Konya Sofia, Rav Chaim Yitzhak, and Rav Natan Siegel, and Rav Shon Brat. And tonight's, tonight's shiur is given by Rebecca Kessin. So for those who don't know Rabbi Kessin, I think most of you by now do, um, he received smicha from Moshe Feinstein. Rebenda was also close to applying Friedlander Zatzal and helped with the publication of his Sifre Haram Ha. He's a PhD in philosophy from Fordham University. He runs a private practice in psychology. In psychology. Um, he runs a private practice in psychology in Brooklyn and in Lakewood and in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Kessin is an internationally, internationally known lecturer and educator, spoken extensively throughout the world. I'm not going to go through all the different uh, countries, but uh, among <clears throat> his main, um, I would say, forte you know, is in, um, in Hashkafa learning methodology and Shemir Salashin, based on the writings of the Ramchal. I'm not going to read any more of this, but I want to tell you that um, I get to learn with. Uh, with Rav Mendel uh, every Wednesday morning, and anybody who's really interested in learning methodology, I think it's only open to men, but it's on YouTube afterwards. Um, I highly recommend it if you have Wednesday morning 10.30 available. And without any further ado, I'll just introduce the title, What Happens on Rosh Hashanah, It's Not What You Think. Uh, just remind you to turn off your cell phones. Thank you for coming. Um, tonight actually is a very interesting shear because it really goes into it really goes into the genius of a uh, of a, a Jewish holiday. Unfortunately. <coughs> When it comes to understanding the Jewish holiday, most people have a superficial understanding. But the truth is that every Jewish holiday has a tremendous, what's called penis. It has a tremendous depth to it that most people never really get to see. And therefore, it's, uh, it's always very nice, it's a, in many ways, a, it's a privilege to show you the incredible beauty of Torah and that it's not merely about one specific event. <clears throat> that every Jewish holiday really fits into a divine agenda. That's really an entire composite of many, many things that, that have to happen. And each holiday itself is really part of that agenda. It's part of that structure. So tonight I want to go into the whole concept of Rosh Hashanah. <clears throat> now as you will see, Rosh Hashanah is something which 
people think they know what it is, but that's not really what it is, as I will illustrate dramatically, actually, <coughs> by asking many questions. <coughs> the first thing we can ask in terms of Rosh Hashanah is really what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? What goes on in Rosh Hashanah? Now, most people would say, well, it's not a problem. It's a judgment day. It's a day when obviously the world is judged, everybody's judged, Jews are judged, mankind is judged, uh, to see based on the merits or whatever they did, to see what they will do. <clears throat> and um, to see if they will live or die, that's what it says in the Mazen, the son of Taikov, to see if they will live or die, and even in living what the quality of life is. Now all this is true. But really, it's a short sight. It's superficial. You have to understand what Rosh Hashanah is in terms of the divine agenda itself. And it's far greater than that. And one of the things that will come out of this is that you will know what the judgment is really all about and how to frame your defense. Because we all are going into Rosh Hashanah and we need a defensive argument. You know, and you can't use a lawyer because even lawyers are being judged, you see. So there's really nobody can turn to, you know. As they say, everybody's on the line, you know, and then that's the end of the finish, you know. Uh, and even judges are being judged, you see. Everybody. And uh, therefore, what comes up, what emerges from all this is you get really get a feel of what arguments you can use to negotiate, you can use that word, with the Rebunshan. That's really what you want to know. Because Rosh Hashanah is serious business. Uh, it's really very serious and so on. <clears throat> because we know that what happened on Rosh Hashanah, uh, the, whatever is judged on Rosh Hashanah, it comes the entire, uh, goes through the entire year. So obviously it's a very serious time. But when you think about it, Rosh Hashanah in many ways presents many problems in terms of what we understand Rosh Hashanah is. <clears throat> <clears throat> Let's take a look at some of the interesting ideas or questions about Rosh Hashanah. And you will see that in many ways they jar your understanding of what it's about. First of all, Rosh Hashanah basically is a day of judgment. Let's, let's go with that. And we know that it's only one day a year. <coughs> Could you imagine a day of judgment being only one day a year? You have any idea what would happen in New York City? if there was only one day a year that the courts were open, right? You have no idea, the whole place would be pandemonium. Uh, the people would be committing crimes 264 days a year because there's only one day they have to appear in court, right? So that makes no sense. How could you have a society where there's only judgment one day a year? That doesn't make any sense, does it? And not only that, but the Gemara says that a person is judged every day, which makes more sense. But if that's the case, then what do you need Rosh Hashanah for? We already have a judgment, right, every day. <clears throat> so why do we need Rosh Hashanah at all? It would seem to be superfluous. What is the distinction? So that already begins to tell you there's something going on here that obviously we don't really know. Besides that, <clears throat> um, every Jewish holiday corresponds to a historical event, a Jewish historical event, right? Pesach exists from Egypt, 
right? The Shemurs, which is the giving of the Torah. You have uh, Sukkot, which we know is either the booths that they built in the desert or the clouds, uh, and so on, you know? Um, <clears throat> Yom Kippur is when Moshe Rabbeinu came down after having forgiven, begged the forgiveness of the Jewish people. <clears throat> the question is, what does Rosh Hashanah correspond to? <clears throat> what is the Jewish event of Rosh Hashanah? Now, the only thing we know about Rosh Hashanah really historically is that Adam Rishon, the first man who was created on the sixth day, the world was created on the 25th day of Elul, right? And therefore, uh, Adam Rishon, the first man, he was created on Rosh Hashanah. <clears throat> but then that begs the question, is Adam Rishon Jewish? No, he wasn't Jewish. The first Jew that appeared is Abraham, Avraham Avinu. Ifri, he was a Hebrew, right? That was the original name of, uh, of, a, of a, a Jew, Ifri, right? And um, so Adam Rishon was not Jewish, so why do we have a, Jewish, a judgment day on the day he was created? Like, so what? You know, I think it would be better to have a judgment day on the day Avraham Avinu was born, whatever that is, right? <clears throat> why Adam Rishon? So that also is, a, is quite a strange idea. <clears throat> also, if you really think about that, it says everything is judged. Everything. All, not only mankind, but all living things are judged. <clears throat> now, that presents a problem, because judgment is only applicable to somebody who has free will, <clears throat> and therefore he can be held accountable for his actions, because he has free will. It doesn't make sense to judge animals or angels, or any of these beings. They're not guilty of anything. They don't have free will. So they have not obviously <clears throat> committed crimes, right? So then why judge them at all? Yet it says, right? Everything that exists really is judged. So the question is why? Because like I said, they're not guilty of anything. So why bother judging them, you see? So again, that presents a problem in terms of understanding what is going on? Then there are other real difficult problems to understand. I'll give you an example. Is Rosh Hashanah Yom Tov? Yes, it's Yom Tov, right? You make Kiddush, you put out a meal, a festive meal, right? You get all the great stuff, right? You get great dishes, right? All the food, everything is out there. Right? Uh, and because Russian is really young, uh, the Gemara calls it young to show Rosh Hashanah. Let me ask something. Don't you find that odd? <clears throat> Imagine if you were being judged life or death and you had to appear in a court. Do you think the night before you would be sitting down to a festive meal? Does that make sense? You know what you would be doing? You'd be sitting in a room taking off Prozac. Left and right, right? Because you'd be going crazy, right? You're being judged life and death. You think you'd be having a festive meal with the whole family, with kiddish and delicious food, right? It doesn't make any sense, <clears throat> you know? If somebody would ever ask you, imagine you, you invite a neighbor or a friend or whatever, and he comes to the, he sits down, and he says, you know, what, what is all this for? What are you celebrating? Oh, we're not celebrating anything. Uh, so the, what the, what's the whole point of all this? 
Oh, so you tell the guy, well, you know, tomorrow I'm being judged if I live or die. <laughs> what do you think he's looking at you? So you got your mind. You know? It doesn't make sense. The actions that we do on Yom Tov is completely inconsistent and incongruous in terms of what is supposed to happen on Hashem. This life and death, what are they doing? <clears throat> Obviously that means there's something different going on <clears throat> than we imagine. You see? And that's a very strong question. Not only that, the uh, Medjur says that the Malachim, the angels say to God, well, it's a young dude, so let them say Halel. You see? Halel? You're saying Halel on a day, and we judge life and death? How could you be saying Halel? So what does God answer them? Well, since the books of life and death are open before me, I really can't say Halel. You know? What kind of dialogue is this? You know, like yeah, the Malachim say, say Halel? So God is saying, well, life and death, well, they know it's life and death. So why do they even bother saying, let's say Halel? See, the whole thing really doesn't make sense when you really begin to think about what is happening, you see. <clears throat> also, we play, we, during Musaf, we have, we have a certain order of prayer. The order is, you see, uh, what do you call it, uh, Malchus, we proclaim God King. There's a whole bunch of verses <clears throat> that proclaims God King, that's number one. And uh, then we say, Zechronus, remember the, our forefathers, their merits, please consider. And then we recite verses of Tsukum about Shafras, about Shafras, and so on, you know. What, what, what's the logic of these uh, Sukkim that deals with these three topics? <clears throat> then, of course, the main mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah is blowing the Shafras. Why? What does blowing the shofar have to do with judgment? Think about that. I mean, it's nice, <clears throat> you know, everybody goes running to shul, they the shofar. Can you tell me what in the world the shofar is doing in Rosh Hashanah? You know, what, do we really need a, a musical accompaniment to the Muslim prayers? <clears throat> and so on, like, what's the logic of all this? You see, and then Gemara says that the sounds of the shofar, there are three, right? There's a tekiah, which is one blast, Shwaram and Trua, right? <clears throat> and so on, that they resemble crying. Why does a shofar have to resemble crying? This is the question, you see. <clears throat> and then it says that, you know, when the, uh, when the uh, Sutton, you know, uh, when he hears the shofar, he gets tremendously confounded, you know? <clears throat> Which is also very difficult to understand, you know? The Sutton has an IQ that's off the charts. You know, he's been here in Shofar for 4,000, 3,000 years already. You think he would have figured out that he's using a blown Shofar on Aleph Tishrei, you know? So, like, what's his problem? What's he getting nervous about? Confounded, you see. He knows what's going to happen, <clears throat> right? And he's experienced this thousands of years. So what's his problem? He's getting confused? We get confused, not him, you see. Also, we have other ideas. Uh, we have the Arcade, which is red. Why is the Akedu red? Yeah, you could say because we ask God to remember the merits <coughs> of Avram and Yitzhak and so on. But there has to be a more profound idea. Also, if you think about it, you know, the 10 days of repentance, right? If, I, if, if, if somebody asks you, well, what do you think you should do? Do you want to have the 10 days of repentance before the judgment or after the judgment? Everybody would have said, hey, do it before the judgment, not after. 
<coughs> right? You don't want to be found guilty and then you have the assessment juba. You want the assessment juba before the judgment. You see? So what does it mean that it comes after Rosh Hashanah? You see, you know. So all of these questions are <coughs> very powerful indicators that there's something going on about Rosh Hashanah that we really don't know. That's far more profound than we think. So the question is, what is it all really all about? <clears throat> By the way, if anybody's been keeping track of the questions, I asked 15 of them. If you've been keeping track. So I'm going to try to answer all 15 questions with one concept. That's, that's a neat trick, as they say. Uh, but it's possible. Because when somebody understands really what a holiday is about, what any Yom Tov is about, it is possible to answer all these questions and really arrive at a beautiful understanding. But you have to get to the real, uh, the real uh, story, the inner story, in order to do that. In other words, the, the trick is always to try to look at something not as a patchwork, fragments, but to understand the real story and that unifies and answers really all the questions. <clears throat> In order to understand Rosh Hashanah, there's certain fundamental ideas that you have to know as a prerequisite. There are three systems or three reasons for the behavior of God. That's all there is. What God does is always because of three reasons. And that's how simple it is. Obviously, they're very profound. But there are three general <clears throat> categories or systems that determine the acts of God. What are they? The first thing is God decided that he wants to bestow an infinite state of goodness on a human being. That's what he decided. And <clears throat> the infinite state, now why he decided, we don't know. But that's what he wants to do. <clears throat> what, the, what is that infinite state of, of, um, of goodness that he wants to bestow? <clears throat> and that is an attachment to him. The greatest pleasure a person can get <clears throat> is to be attached to God to experience him directly to the extent that a human being can experience God. That's the greatest thing in, the, in existence. There's nothing greater than that. And this is the purpose of creation, that he wants to a human being to experience God himself. It's called vacus. It's really what vacus is, attachment. Uh, that what God wants ultimately is that a human being should attach to him, in any case. <clears throat> but God had to make a decision. Does he want that attachment to exist without in any input of man, which means that it's a gift. You know, I give you a gift. You don't need to do anything. In that sense, it's pure chesed. Okay. Or does a person have to work for it? <clears throat> in some way, he has to earn that Vegas. And therefore, the Vegas would be a reward, not a gift. 
And God made that decision. He decided, without going into why, <clears throat> that the best thing for man to do is to earn the reward, to earn this state. <clears throat> and therefore, this state is now called uh, a reward, not a gift. Obviously, a very momentous decision that he made. You see. <clears throat> now, once he decided that, then God had to provide some type of task. Well, what are you supposed to do? You know, if you have to work for it, earn it, you have to do something, right? So God creates a situation where man can do something. But in order to do that, what he creates is a world, okay, a world, a, a, a situation that can be worked on. You know, it's an opportunity to do something. Uh, so what God does, does is very interesting. God absents himself. He removes his presence from the creation. He creates an entire universe and he removes himself from that. Where you no longer perceive God as the source of everything. Uh, so therefore, and that's really Oedem Hazer. This world is really a world where the presence of God is removed. It's the definition of Oedem Hazer, you see. If that's the case, and that's called the Chesan, it's called a deficiency, you see. So the world must be created deficient in order to enable man to have a job or a task to do. <clears throat> What's the task? What's the job? So what the job would be is to bring God back. <clears throat> in other words, I will create, God says, a universe, a situation in which I am not here. But I'm going to leave little hints that I exist, you see. So that's what God does. He, he, he creates a world where he's not there and he leaves little clues or hints, indicators that there's a supreme being involved. Uh, that, that many ideas that encompass that and so on, uh, you see. And therefore, this world has a chisson, a deficiency. What does God want to do? God wants mankind to bring him back where his presence will pervade the entire universe. You see, so God goes from a state of hester, concealment, to a state of, of, of gilui, revelation. You see, now when man, if man does bring him back, which he will, okay, then that's called tikkun, rectification or restoration or repair. It's all the same idea. Uh, man must repair the existential state of the Bria. <clears throat> the existential state of the Bria is the removal of God's presence. And the tikkun, the rectification, is the return of God to that part of creation. That's the task given to man. <clears throat> and this is what God does. Okay, now, how do you do it? How does a person do it? So what God did is very interesting. <clears throat> God always works with the concept of meter connected mido, measure for measure. Okay, so what God says is the following. If the reward of the end of the matter is that you will experience me, you will know what I am and who I am to whatever level and so on, then the task is to find me. To the extent that you find me, to that extent you will experience me, you see, measure for measure. To the extent that you labor to realize that this universe is not physical, that there's an entire spiritual dimension, right? For beyond this physical, and that is a supreme being, to that extent, you will experience me because you look for me, 
And guess what? You found me. So it's in many ways measure for measure. <clears throat> so therefore, what God decided is to give mankind mitzvahs, commandments. Because a commandment is really a way that you express that I believe God is supreme and therefore I will follow his will. <clears throat> You'll notice that every mitzvah in the Torah interferes with your life. That sounds like a funny way to say it. But that's really what it does. In some way, for instance, you walk in the street in Jerusalem, right? And all of a sudden you smell this incredible steak or some incredible dish, right? And unfortunately, well, actually I shouldn't even use the word juice in Jerusalem. You're in Manhattan. It's much more appropriate, right? And you're in Manhattan and you haven't eaten lunch, right? And you smell this restaurant. And you take a look at the restaurant and strafe. Okay, so what do you do? So you say to yourself, wait a minute, you know, I want to, I, I'd love to go in and eat this stuff. But the problem is that there's a commandment that says no. You cannot eat meat, which is trefer. Uh, so that becomes a contest, isn't it? It's a tremendous conflict. <clears throat> because if you go in and eat from that restaurant, what you're really expressing is that I exist independent of God, and I have my own will. Do whatever I want, you see. So that becomes a sin. If, however, you don't go into the restaurant and eat, what you're really expressing is, no, the will of God supersedes my will, right? And as a result of that, I believe he's the only will. We all emanate from God. Therefore, I will not violate his command. Uh, you see, so therefore, every mitzvah is nothing more than an opportunity or a wherewithal to express that you believe there's a supreme being that exists and that his will supersedes yours. That's the concept of a mitzvah, you see. <clears throat> and that's the way you do the tikkun. Every time you do a mitzvah, it's an expression of Enoi Mubadai. Besides God, there's nothing else. And therefore God says, if that's what you believe, then I will get closer to you. That's the logic of a mitzvah. Now God knew that mankind would not do mitzvahs. Actually, it's Jews who would not do the mitzvahs. So he initiated a second device called tshuva, which I will talk about God willing, here next week. I will elaborate on that. Uh, so that is a secondary device. And then God knew that people will not do tshuva, really. So therefore, he initiated a third device called Yisuri for suffering. Okay, and I'll talk about that next week. It's all, you know. But in any case, there are three devices that do the tikkun. Those are called the three tikkun devices. <clears throat> Very important, okay? But in the end, with all these devices, this occurs. Uh, what occurs? That God gets closer and the revelation of God will happen after the Jews do all the mitzvahs or tshuva or yisurim, and then the God appears in the messianic era. It's really what it's about. And the messianic era is nothing more than the ultimate fulfillment of the whole job of creation. In fact, the Mashiach cannot come until the Jews will have done all the jobs that they have to do and then Mashiach will usher in the, the, the uh, divine presence. It's really what it's all about. It's really very simple in that sense. <clears throat> and that's what happens. <clears throat> Therefore, based on what I've said, there are now three systems or actions that God does. And everything he does, all his actions or behaviors, falls with one of these three systems. The first thing is called, okay, the the behavior or the actions of God, hakil, which is meant to create a universe 
a background, create man, and then provide man with the opportunity to do mitzvahs or to do the tikkun. <clears throat> so therefore, all the things we see, all of it, must have a rationale that they advance the purpose of creation. Now that's a, that's a very amazing statement. <clears throat> because if you'll notice, most of the things that exist, we have no idea why it exists. For instance, there are 300,000 different species of beetles. You're probably thinking, well, they're all crawling in your backyard, right? <laughs> oh, yes, there are 300,000 species of beetles. It's astounding. You mean, if God had created, I don't, not 300,000 beetles, there are trillions of beetles. But a species means different types of beetles. It's astounding. There are 7,000 species of ants. There are 30,000 different species of orchids. Believe this? It's astounding. Yeah, you have no idea that uh, every, everything you look at has species, thousands. What's interesting about all this is that the only creature, living form, that has no species is man. Think about that. You know, there is no, man is the only creature of all creation that has no other species of man. You know, I know you're going to think about yourself, well, my neighbor, he's got to be another species. <laughs> you know, I, I realize that, you know, so uh, we can debate that. Uh, but the, uh, but take it on faith, you know, there are no other species, no matter what you think of your neighbor, you know. Anyway, uh, the question is, why do you need all this stuff? <clears throat> we don't know. Every species that exists must exist to advance the purpose of creation, which is tikkun. If one was missing, it wouldn't work. We don't know. <clears throat> and so on. And the uh, thousands of, uh, you know, 5,000 mammals and so on and so forth, you know. We don't know, but the thing is, everything that exists advances the purpose of creation. All of this was part of the Anonis Akil, that God knew. He said, listen, in order for me to create the ability of man to do the tikkun, I need to create a world that has <clears throat> thousands and thousands. <clears throat> Scientists estimate that there are either, there's between 10 and 100 million different life forms. You have any idea what that is? 100 million life forms. It's incredible. <clears throat> and every one must exist, <clears throat> or else there wouldn't be a tikkun. And what's interesting is that if a species becomes extinct, man cannot destroy. The only reason why God allows him to destroy a species is because that species is no longer necessary for the tikkun. And therefore he says, do what you want. It's interesting. But this is not a sakil, <clears throat> where everything that is created is created for the specific purpose of allowing man kind, actually the Jews, to do the tikkun process. That's the first. So that's the first series of actions that he does. Second series of actions that he does is he awaits. <clears throat> he awaits the performance of man to judge him. That's called the Anonis Hamishpa. It's the attribute of God or the behavior that judges man. But for that, God waits for man to act. It's a response, you see. And that entails a judgment, and God waits for man to act, and then in response to what he does, he, he will be judged, he will either be rewarded, 
or punished or whatever. And you should know there's no such thing as reward in this world, right? What reward means, he will be given a greater opportunity to do more mitzvahs. That's the concept of reward that you can have in this world. But whatever it means, uh, that's a second uh, area or aspect of judgment, or the, the, actually the behavior of God. <clears throat> now, here's the problem. If mankind has, if Jews have to do the tikkun, okay, then here's the problem. They have to have free will. If they don't have free will, then they're not given credit for what they did, right? If they're compelled to do it, there's no credit for that. So therefore, mankind or Jewish people must be given free will. So therefore, they can be credited or discredited, right, with what they did. Uh, but the problem is this. If that's the case, it is possible for mankind, <coughs> I'm going to use mankind now, to sin 24-7. What happens if they do that? That means the will of God is frustrated. That means they're not doing the deacon. Uh, it's possible because they have free will. You know, maybe unlikely, but it's possible. That means man has the power, right, to frustrate the will of God that there will be no future world. Interesting. And did that ever happen? Yes, Noah. Mankind sinned to such an extent where God decided <clears throat> that he cannot allow this world to exist because the evil is so rampant that anybody who's in this world has no free will anymore because there's so much up. The opportunity to do evil is infinitely greater than the opportunity to, the opportunity to do good. And therefore the whole thing doesn't make sense because that's really what happened. Uh, so it's there for you see, and fortunately for us, Noah didn't do that. But imagine if Noah had joined the crowd, then he would destroy the whole creation and that's the end of it, you see? Uh, so what did the Bhagavad do? You see. So what God does is He initiates a third series of actions. What? It's called another Sayyidhu. Thank you. <clears throat> what is another Sayyidhu really? That's the question. And why is it called Yichu? Because normally when you, put, you have a judge, right? If there's a system of judgment, right? then all that, what that means is that uh, <clears throat> if people don't deserve, then they don't deserve it. There's no, you know, in other words, there's, there's no obligation to rehabilitate them. There's no obligation at all. It's a justice system. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And that's it. There's no obligation from a judge to rehabilitate. That's far beyond justice. So when we say, I don't say yichud, it is the acts of God that God does, okay, that indicates that he is above justice. That means he can dispense with mishpat. He can dispense with judgment and do whatever he wants. He doesn't follow any rules other than what he wants to do, okay? And that's why it's called Now, what does God want to do? Thank you. What does God want to do that he will dispense justice? He wants to make sure that there will be a future world. There must be a future world. He refuses to allow mankind to frustrate his will, even though <clears throat> mankind has free will. That's the third series of actions. In other words, it's called a backup system. It's called a contingency plan. That if people don't do what they have to do, God insists that they will be, there will be a future world and there will be Jews in the future world. 
Interesting. And obviously you could and so on. And that, in a certain sense, that's a guarantee that meant that the, at least the Jewish people must exist and there must be a free, uh, a, uh, a future world. In any case, now, the, one of the primary ways of Anokasi Yuchav is that it works through Yisurim, or suffering. That's number one. The second thing is that Anokasi Yuchav, to us, makes no sense. It is a concept of why evil people prosper, why righteous people suffer. It's a topsy-turvy world. That's what Hanukkah is. When the attribute of justice leaves, and the attribute of Yichud comes in, the backup system, uh, then the whole world becomes topsy-turvy. It doesn't make sense. It's like an Alice in Wonderland world where nothing makes sense. Everything is irrational, you see. And God does that because he knows what he has to do to save mankind, but specifically to save the Jewish people. But it, it doesn't, it's not, we don't understand the logic. It's called anhoganisteris, you see. It is something which is completely concealed, you see, and to us, it's illogical. But God knows exactly what he has to do, and he employs all different kinds of things to guarantee the existence of the Jews. Very important concept, okay? In any case, in any case, um, that's what it means. Sadiq Hashem God is righteous in all his ways, you see? Because in the end, you need to be worthy of the future world. But to get there, but to get you there, he can be a chosid, which means he can rehabilitate you. That's the concept of chosid, that he's above the uh, din. That's why God is two things. <coughs> he's a tzaddik, tzaddik Hashem bechol rochov, you see, the chosid bechol ma'asov. And he's a chosid, you see. And that, you see, where it says, where God says, after they got out of Egypt, Ani Hashem refecho, I am God, your healer. What do you mean, your healer? You know, hey, you're a judge. What does that have to do with healing? Healing is above judgment. Nobody tells you There's no, there's no, uh, <clears throat> uh, there's no law or obligation to heal. But the Bonshim says, listen, I'm much more than your judge. A judge just looks at, well, do you, uh, do you have the merits or not? A healer, right? I don't care how you got sick. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to rehabilitate you. I'm going to cure you. See. So when the Roshim says, Ani Hashem Rafecha, that's the greatest news we can ever hear, right? Because it means that no matter how bad we are, right, he's going to heal us and get us into the future world. Maybe a little rough ride, that's true, but in the end, we will get into Ilum Hapo. That's the secret of Ani Hashem Rafecha, what the Roshim says. Okay, <clears throat> now, now that we understand these three ideas, we can understand uh, we can begin to understand the whole concept of really Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> 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 if you open a business, okay? Let's say you open up a business on January 2nd, right? You don't just open a business and walk away. No, you need a what's called a, an assessment. 
In order to understand, the, since the, what's the bottom line of a business? To make money. So you don't just open it up and then never look at it. No. Uh, you have what's called a periodic assessment. Right? You need to know. Well, do I have too much inventory? Is my marketing good? Right? Uh, what about my, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the accounting division? You know, all kind of, and, and so on. What about my research division? Uh, every business always needs a periodic assessment. You know, just ask any accountant. That's what you do then, right? Uh, that's why, because if you run a business, you want to see what's happening. You may not be making too much money because one of your divisions may not be the right way, you see? So there's always a periodic assessment in any venture, right? In any kind of uh, uh, <clears throat> venture that you do business and so on, right? The same thing with the Rebunshla, God. What's the business of God? Think about that. What's his bottom line? He has only one bottom line. What is that? I want to come back. That's his bottom line. Tikkun. <clears throat> Everything else is irrelevant to God. You know, what, what, you know, we think that you know, your concerns are the most important thing. Really, in the end, it's irrelevant. The only thing relevant is that God wants to come back. He wants the Jews to do the Tikkun. That's it. Nothing else matters, you see. That's the whole purpose of creation, and everything that's created is for that purpose, to advance the purpose of creation, which means tikkun, which means the Russian want to re-enter the creation. And that's really what the messianic era is, right? Where it says, Kimonor's Deo, the earth, as Hashem, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters covers the seabed, you see? That's all he wants, you see? Everything is just a wherewithal, a hechetimza, to get to that place. You see, uh, therefore, he's need, uh, he, uh, the, 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 this business, so to speak, this endeavor, God has to evaluate it. Where's it holding? You see, did the Jews do their job at all? Are the Jews doing the deacon? You see, where are they holding on this deacon? <clears throat> is the amount of mitzvahs that they're doing, is that enough? Maybe it's not enough. Maybe now, for instance, the Jews in Spain, well, they're not doing their job. They're assimilating, they're intermarrying, right? So I gotta kick the Jews out of Spain, you see? And I gotta bring them to another country, and in that country, they now can do a, a better tikkun. And God looks at all of this. He looks at the world, he looks at the Jews on an individual level, and on a national level, you see? Where are they holding in terms of the tikkun? It's not so much sin that he's concerned with. Where are you on the tikkun contribution? Every Jew is assigned a place in creation. Every Jew. You don't realize that. You have a unique assignment that only you can do. If you don't do it, nobody else can pick up the slack. You have to come back as a reincarnation and continue the job. That's why there is Gilgal. You see, because that aspect of creation is assigned to you. So the question is, where are you in terms of contributing to the tikkun? That's the, you know, this is a very important concept of the periodic assessment. And that has to happen at least once a year. Now, that's what happens on Rosh Hashanah. It's not a matter of did you sin or did you do mitzvahs. That's included. The real thing is, where are you with the tikkun? 
And you see, what are you contributing? Are you doing the tikkun or are you doing the kilkul? Are you helping advance the purpose of creation? Or are you rather removing it further? I see. So then God looks at you and he looks at the Jewish people in whatever country they are. It's okay. They're not doing their job. So I now have to change the game plan because in this country they're not doing it. I have to allow them to undo what they did, which is not good, right? And I'm going to move them to another country. For instance, you know, God may say, okay, they're in this country, but I need to move them to another place. But in order for that to happen, God will say, okay, I'm going to make that place that I want to move them to wealthy. And then the Jews will go into that, and in that place they will be tested. Uh, you see, it's, in, it's infinite cheshbonus, as they say. Exactly who to move, where to move them, when to move them. You know, and only God can do that, and so on, you know. But in the end, there's only one thing he has in mind, Tikkun. To come back, you see. So therefore, the, the Rosh Hashanah is all about <coughs> a periodic assessment of the entire creation. We fit into it, right? Because we contribute to that. You see, you know what it's like? It's like a boss of a factory. Goes into the factory, goes into his office, right? And he evaluates all the workers, you see? But it's not so much evaluating the workers as well, you know, uh, that he, is he doing a good job or not? It's, am, am, I, am I making money? Is this guy helping me make money or not? You see, that's the question here. Not a, was he a good guy or bad guy? You know what I'm saying? The key is, well, what's he doing for my pocket book? You see, that's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's about the periodic assessment. And therefore, Rosh Hashanah is what's called the readjustment. That's what happens in Rosh Hashanah. God now readjusts everybody. Now, we're hoping uh, that God's not going to look at us and say, well, you know, hey, you did a job. You didn't do a very good job, you know. Uh, until now, I gave you a great job. You had an easy life, right? You're not doing very well. You're not contributing to the thing. And you know what I'm going to do? You know, I'm going to move you from the VP to the clerk. And all of a sudden, you become poor. You see, because now God wants you in, the, in, a, in a state of poverty. What are you going to do? But we don't want that. You see, we want to be moved, or maybe we do want to be moved. You know, maybe if a guy's poor, he'd love to be moved to a position of wealth. <clears throat> but everything is moved, <clears throat> the person is moved, uh, his positions are altered <clears throat> based on what God assesses that person to do the tikkun. That's what happens in Rosh Hashanah. It's a whole different understanding. It's a boss coming into his factory and moving everybody around, including pink slips, you know. And a pink slip is your debt, you know. I, I mean, that's what a pink slip, that's the equivalent, right? In fact, the pink slip is you're fired. Here you get fired by being killed, right? In some way, that's why. Yahoo Sanatoyka, who's gonna die, who's gonna choke to death. You ever read that kind of stuff? Just go down your back, uh, you know, because, you know, but what that means is that <clears throat> you're fired. But God doesn't fire a Jew. What he does, he says, okay, you're not making this Gilgal, you know, right? You already chose the way, you're not doing it, you know? I'm gonna kill you, or yeah, I'm gonna exterminate, whatever you wanna call it. And I'm gonna bring you back eight years later in a different country, right? With a different wife, different kids, you know? And hopefully you can do a good job there. Yeah, is it, for God to do that is nothing, whether he shift you around. That's not even an afterthought for them. 
Uh, you see, with us, it's a big deal. Hey, you don't want to leave the planet, right? Uh, but it's all in the context of you need to contribute to the tikkun. What are you doing, you see? And therefore, therefore, what Rosh Hashanah really is, is that it's the periodic tikkun and it's the readjustment based on your actions and the spiritual requirements or needs of what you need to do to contribute to the tikkun. It's much grander than you can ever imagine because everything is included, you see. Now, uh, but God did is incredible. He didn't have to tell anybody what he was doing. You see, he could have come into his office in a factory, right? He could have sat down in his big chair, and in, in an instant of time, the mission says, <laughs> the skiro akas, what God does is he starts from here, and in an instant of time, he evaluates the entire creation, everything, all 100 million species, everything, in an instant of time. And he could have done it, he didn't have to tell anybody. Why? Because for him, what's the big deal? Nobody knows. The Malachim don't know, the Sultan don't know, we don't know, finished. I don't tell anybody. So what the bunch of is a tremendous act of chesed. Because he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to decide what to do to you and all of your stuff. So what he decided to do is he's going to tell you that the big review is coming up. You see? So it will allow us to shape up. That's what he did. Uh, so he informed us that he is now going to do what? He is going to evaluate the whole creation. So you need to get your act together. That's a chesed. You see? Why? Because he wants us to influence the verdict. That's why. So when does it start? It starts on Elo. You see? Elo. Hey, it's Elo. Lashon is right around the corner. 30 days. I want you to do tshuva. You see? You do tshuva, then you will influence the verdict. You see, that's the key. And that was a tremendous act of chesed that he did. You see? But he didn't have to do that. You see? So therefore, that begins to tell us what Rosh Hashanah is and why Elul exists because he told us that he's going to do the review and therefore we need to shape up okay but there's a big problem that God created because if God would have evaluated by himself then nobody would know he just do what he does it's like a boss going into a factory he does what he does. Some guys he elevates, promotes them. And some guys he demotes them. And some guys he just fires. Nobody would know. You know, all of a sudden, one day in the mail, you get a pink slip. And that's it. And you are informed by the verdict or the consequence. Uh, but the Russian didn't do that, you see. So he gives us arrow. Then Rosh Hashanah is one. That's the judgment itself. And then he says, wait a minute. You know, in every court land, there's an appeal process. The is the appeals, you see? Because maybe then you really get your act together because you've already been judged. You know, you have no idea what it is. Maybe you're found guilty. So much says, okay. So you're gonna say, why didn't I take advantage of Elo? So much says, okay, I'll give you another 10 days. After the judgment, that's called the appeals process. You see, look how much God wants you to do. So he gives you an appeal. So first he warns you 30 days before. Then there's a judgment, right? And then there's the appeals. It's incredible how much time he's giving you to do tshuva. Now, 
There's a big problem. What's the problem? If God would have judged everything in the creation <clears throat> without telling anybody, then nobody would know. You wouldn't know. The Malachim don't know. Nobody knows. It's in the mind of God. But when God warned us because he wants us to influence the verdict, there's a problem now. Because now all of a sudden we know, and it's become a whole court case. There's a president, right? But wait a minute. If it becomes a court case, what happens? Then the sultan is called in to prosecute. Because whenever there's a court case, there's always a prosecuting attorney. And the heavenly DA is a sultan. So now that we are being judged openly in front of a court, and God is saying, okay, it's open now, right? So the sultan, he's there now, going crazy. He's trying to condemn everybody. So what did God do for us? It's like, thank you or no thank you. You know, you know thank you for giving me time to do tshuva, but no thank you, and I gotta face this heavenly prosecutor, right? And there's no, you can't bribe the guy, you can't throw him out, you can't fire him, what can you do? You're finished. And let me tell you something, you don't want that prosecuting attorney, because that guy, he's gonna take a look, you know, and you're gonna do your tshuva, you know. You know, I'll think about doing tshuva, who knows. And maybe I'll start in half years from now, you know. And the son's gonna think about it, he's gonna get up in front of him and says, he's gonna look at the best of him, you know, because that's what he does, right? He goes and says, do you, do you hear what this guy's saying? Do you believe this guy? You call this a tshuva? And he's gonna rake the floor with you. That's what he does, you see? Because with him, hey, it's either 100%, and if there's any a nano amount, a nanogram of insincerity, he's got it. He knows exactly, we don't want that. Uh, you know, it's like we say to God, thank you and no thank you. Uh, you know, because at least maybe when you would have done it, okay. But now the Sutton, the Sutton's not interested in rehabilitation. Uh, he's interested in judgment. And he wants to destroy us. He couldn't care less. So it seems like inadvertently what the Gnoshma has done is he has given us over to the Sutton. Bad news. You see. So what does he do? This is like a whole soap opera. <laughs> and you thought you thought the soap operas was interesting, right? This is real drama. That's what it really is. So what the Bhagavad does is an incredible thing. You know, he wants to tell the Jews that he's going to judge them because he wants them to do tshuva and influence the verdict. He doesn't want to say chayev. He wants them to say zakai. You know, but like I said, at the same time, the sultan has got, he has got a heyday out there. So Bonshim says, you know, there's only one solution here. I need to stop the sultan. But I can't just dismiss the guy because that's his job. You know what I'm saying? That's his job to prosecute. I can't dismiss the guy. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, maybe he'll sue me in court. Uh, so Moshim says, okay, I'm going to leave it up to the Jews. They can stop the sudden. How? I'm going to give a mitzvah of shofar. Shofar. That's what it does. If the Jews blow shofar, then all of a sudden, as soon as Shemayim hears the shofar, then God gets up from his kisayim, his judgment, and goes into his private chambers, right? 
private chambers, and then he judges the Jews. But what's the judgment? It's no longer the judgment where you have a prosecuting attorney trying to condemn us. It's the judgment based on the It's based on the It's based on the contingency plan that guarantees the Jews must be held above. That's what it does. What a difference. I see. And what the, that's what happens when the Shurfa happens, that the Russian gets up in the Kisei Mishpat, because he's the judge. He is the actual judge. In other court cases, you should know, during the year, God does not always judge directly. You can have Malachim judging. God assigns them to judge. But of course, God tells them what to do and all that. It's not like they, they figure it out themselves. And so, you know. But on Rosh Hashanah, he is the judge. You see, so as soon as God hears the shofar, so to speak, God stands up, so to speak, not literally, but figuratively, he says, okay, court's over. And the sultan is going wild because he realized what just happened. He just lost. Not because he lost the case. He just lost his job. And the version says, okay, I'm now going into my private chains and I will judge the Jews no longer based on mishpat, but based on yichud. You know, I'm now going to look at them and guarantee that they must be in the future world. That's a whole different scenario where we don't have to worry. You know, it, 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 it can still be very rough, but at least you know that in the end of time, you will be in the future world. That's the guarantee, you see. And as a result of that, that's what the shofar does, you see. And that's a very important idea. <clears throat> and that's why there is a shofar. So in the end, what we see is an incredible grand plan. It's a plan where God judges the entire creation and he alerts the Jews so they can influence the verdict, you see. And even though he initiates a judicial process, you see, as soon as the Jews blow shofar, the mishpat ends, those series of actions of mishpat ends, and the series of actions, which is yichud, begins. But the problem is in yichud, that nobody knows what goes on. It is a completely concealed way uh, that God uh, um, saves the Jewish people. Now, once we understand this, we now begin to understand what Russia is really, really all about. And <clears throat> we understand the answer to all of this. What is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? It's not judgment, it's assessment, you see. Although it carries the weight of judgment, obviously, but it's not the same. God looks at you in terms of your tikkun contribution, not so much your sins. And then, of course, we do our chet, and all that chet. But he looks at you, of course, he looks at your sins because that's what's preventing you from doing the tikkun, your contribution. But that's, in a certain sense, secondarily. His concern is the Bria. His concern is he wants to come back, you see. And therefore, everything is moved. Nations are moved. Success is moved. Everything is moved. Wars, everything is done predicated on the assessment of the entire, what's called tikkun haklodi, the entire rectification. And now you understand. That can only happen once a year. Because what God does is he assesses, readjusts, right? But he doesn't do it every day. He's got to allow that which he put into place to allow itself to unfold. Give it a year, let's see what happens. That's why the judgment of all creation is only once a year. But with Zed and Gomorrah, Nidam Chodyoyim, yeah, that's, 
looking at your Averis to clean you up, so to speak, you see. So the purpose or the objective of both judgments are very different. <coughs> you see, that's what the difference between Rosh Hashanah and the other, and the other ones is all, you know. <coughs> what is the Jewish, why is it Aleph Tishrei? Why is Rosh Hashanah Aleph Tishrei? And we know, so far, well, the only thing that happened on Aleph Tishrei <coughs> is Adam Rishon. Adam Rishon, he's not Jewish. Is he not? Who is Adam Rishon? What's the difference between Yisrael and Ivri? You ever notice? Aaron Avinu is called an Ivri. Who first got the name Yisrael? Yaakov. What happened to Aaron Avinu? Why wasn't he called Yisrael? You ever wonder about that? Why are we called Yisrael? <coughs> the answer to that is a very important idea. Adam Rishon was not Jewish, but he was an Israeli. He's supposed to laugh at that. He must be tired. In fact, Rosh Hashanah is an Israeli holiday. Now, before they call me to the Knesset and give me an award, <laughs> wow, an Israeli holiday, I mean, how good can I help? You can't get better than this. Uh, you know. The difference between Yisrael and Yehudi or Ivri is this. In order for a person to do the teaching, he has to have a certain type of neshama. And God gave Adam Rishon that neshama. When God said in the beginning, if Israel accepts the Torah, fine. If not, I'll restore the world for him. Who is Israel? Israel is any person that has that type of neshama, which consists of five parts. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chayim, Yechidah. If anybody has those parts, then he can rectify creation. Because whatever he does, thinking, speaking, or action, will influence all the spiritual worlds. Adam Rishon had that. He was a Yisrael, but he wasn't an Ivri. Because the original intent of God was not to give the ability to do Tikkun, right? To a Jew, it was to give it to all mankind. Why should a Jew get it? So therefore, the first one created was Adam Rishon, not a Jew. Because the purpose was to give it to all mankind, because that's only fair. Why give a guy without ability to do tikkun? What's the point? Uh, so therefore, God gave it to Adam. That's why Adam is called the Israel, but he's not an Ivri. It was only after 2,000 years of sinning that the, that the nation of the world, there was only one, refused to do mitzvahs and the tikkun, actually the sheva mitzvahs, the seven mitzvahs in Noel, that God turned out from Avino and said, listen, you're the only one doing what I said. So I'm going to take away the ability of Goya, of uh, the Goya, of uh, uh, other people to do the Tikkun, and I'm going to give you the ability to Tikkun and your descendants. So therefore, the job of Tikkun, which is a job of Israel, became a Jewish enterprise. We took over the job of all the world. You see, it's a very important concept. And most people don't realize, you see, you know? And then because God took away the ability of mankind to do the tikkun, he took away a lot of their neshama. They're no longer connected to the upper world. And he, he allowed Avram Avinu to continue, because Avram Avinu was really part of the seven nations, was part of that. He allowed Avram Avinu to continue, you see, and that's the Bispin of Sarah, that he made a covenant with Avram, that you're the only one that now can do the tikkun. And therefore, the job of Yisrael became a 
he, Ivry, it now became a Jewish job, you see. We took over the job of the mission, you see. <clears throat> therefore, the reason why, so therefore, if we realize that, that all the mission was Yisrael, not an Ivry, yes? Well, what's the job of Yisrael? Tikkun. But the Tikkun is the whole business, it's not the business of God. And when was, when did the business of Tikkun start? With Adam Rishon. And Adam Rishon was created out of Tishrei. So therefore, that's annual. You annually assess your business. And that's why the annual assessment of the Tikkun is on Rosh Hashanah, which was the creation of the first man who could do the Tikkun, you see? And that's why it's on, the, the judgment is on Rosh Hashanah. It's an annual assessment, you see. Uh, so therefore, Rosh Hashanah is really an Israeli holiday in that sense. It's the holiday of Yisrael, because that's when the job of Tikkun really began. And it was taken over later, of course, by Avraham Avinu, and so on. <clears throat> so the question is this. <clears throat> it was taken over by Avraham Avinu. That means the non-Jews have no purpose. You see, I don't understand how exact this is. You do not exist unless you contribute to the Tikkun. You have no rationale for that. You see, all 300,000 species of beetles, the whole rationale is because they are part of the Tikkun. We don't know how, you see. So if God, the question is of God to the ability of a guy, and that's the origin of the word guy, uh, somebody who's not Jewish, you see. <clears throat> if they, so they have the God's way to the their Tikkun ability. So why are they going? It sounds like a very strange question, you know. But, but if you understand that, <clears throat> everything that exists must have a basis in Tikkun, why do they exist? And the answer, they exist because their assignment now is to assist the Jew to do the Tikkun, which of course they don't, you see, and they're gonna be in a lot of hot water. But in a certain sense, they do because they, 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 their job is not to punish the Jews. We get into that now. <clears throat> but really, that is, so what, what's happening now is that they now are to assist the Jews in, in ways that the Jews need to be assisted, especially in the concept of persecutions and so on, which is a third Tikkun device. Anyway, uh, so this answers the question, why is Judgment Day on Rosh Hashanah? You see, uh, now you understand why Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Why? How do we sit down and make a whole meal out of this? And the answer is, because we know we're going to blow the shofar. We know God's going to get up, right? It's guaranteed. You know, it's like, uh, and then God's going to go into his private room, and there God's going to, don't worry about it, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll rough you up a little, you know. But in the end, you're going to be in Elam Haba. So therefore, we're not worried, you see. So the angels chapt, they say, wait a minute, what kind of, it's just like a charade here, you know, what's going on here, right? Uh, if you are guaranteed, if you, when they go chauffeur, you're going to guarantee them, right, that they're going to be in Elam Haba. So, you know, what's the problem here? Cut the Prozac out, and let's have Kiddush. You see, that's what the Malcolm is saying. So let's say Hallel, because really it's, an, it's a way that we can be guaranteed that we will exist, because God will now do it, go into his private chambers when you have the shofar. So God says, wait a minute, let's not get carried away here. Right, what does that mean? That's true that everything will be good for the Jews, even though it's Rosh Hashanah, right? But they can't say Hallel. You don't say Hallel, you have to be joyous. And if you know that you're gonna be judged, even if you know the verdict will go ultimately to you, just to walk into a court is nerve-wracking, right? Doesn't make a difference, you know? And therefore, you cannot say hollow. But that's why Rosh is a Yantav, because the Jews are guaranteed to walk out and survive and be in the future world. 
you see. Why do we say Malchus is a chronus and shirfus? Because what we're really doing is pleading and say, listen, you know, uh, we want to survive. And we realize the main thing we have to do is declare you king. We have to recognize that you are a supreme being and we have to follow your will. So that's the first set of psukim, Malchus, where we say that God is king. And ultimately, that's the truthful, you see. What happens if we don't do that? So then we plead with him on the second bunch of sukkim, which is the chuenas. And we say, okay, we're not doing the tshuva. But remember our fathers, what they did, that they worshipped you, so maybe on their merit, we can also survive, you see. And then if that doesn't work, then we say sukkim on shurfa, which means please, get out of that room and just go into your private chambers. <clears throat> you see. <clears throat> and we also understand also what a shurfa is. A shufa stops the sotan. That's what it's for. In fact, if you don't blow shufa, it's bad news. Because Gemara says that if a city does not blow shufa, they will have a very bad year. Even though collectively Jews are blowing shufa, but individually they're not being protected. You see. <clears throat> so that's the concept of shufa. And we now understand why shufa, the sounds of a shufa, kiyashvam and tua, why they resemble crying. Because there are three ways a person can cry. <clears throat> a whale or a staccato a whale or a sigh. <clears throat> because shufa stops the sudden, true. But it does move God into the yichud room. And the yichud room is a lot of suffering. Because that's how he bails us out. So therefore the shufa is really saying, please, do anything you do. Just get us out, get us out of that courtroom. Right? Even if we have to go into the room where we know there will be a lot of suffering in order to save us, rehabilitate us, do it. And that's the crying of the shofar and so on. <clears throat> Why is the sudden confused? Because he's hoping, it's not that he's confu confused, <clears throat> he's confounded because he's hoping the Jews won't pull shofar. So if his job won't end, see? So of course he knows the Jews can blow shofar, but he's hoping that he's got enough Jews assimilated, integrated, and unaffiliated, right? And so on, that they won't blow, and unfortunately, many of them don't, and so on, you know. But when he hears the shofar, he gets tremendously confounded, because frustrated, I should say, and, and therefore, of course, um, uh, <clears throat> as a result of that, he knows that the, the, job's, the job's over, and so on. The question is, why does shofar work? It's always a logical rationale. What is the rationale of shofar? Okay. I blow a horn, ram's horn, fine, okay. Why does it work? And the answer to that is because of the Akedah. <clears throat> what was the merit of our former being by the Akedah? It's a very important concept. Why is it we're still taking, telling God, give us the merit of what Abraham Abinu did 4,000 years ago? Why do we still have that merit? Because you have to understand what the Akedah really was. God appears to Avraham Avinu and he says, okay, you, you know the guy in the next room? Yeah, it's my son Yitzchak, right? Okay, I want you tomorrow morning to go and kill him. Actually, God didn't say that. He just said, bring him up as a sacrifice. The oilo, you know. Now, so Avraham Avinu was immediately faced with seven difficulties that went through his mind. Okay, these are called the seven Nisiyonis of Avraham Avinu. Okay, what are they? First Nisiyon. 
What do you mean God is telling me to kill a person? He's innocent. That means God wants human sacrifices? Excuse me. This is pagan. You know, Jews don't sacrifice anybody. God doesn't require sacrifices. I mean, Yitzchak is a tzaddik. It's not that he's guilty of, 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 of death. God never asked somebody to kill somebody else unless they are terribly, uh, <clears throat> you know, idol worshippers like Amalek or whatever and so on. But we're talking about Yitzchak. So the government was stunned when he killed Yitzchak. First, so that's the first blockage, this sudden. Okay? Second thing is, Avraham Avinu understood the worth of a human being. You know, to him he understood what the, what the significance of a human being is. So wait a minute, how do I kill anybody? <clears throat> Third idea, that Avraham Avinu is chesed. You know what chesed is? He loves, he couldn't wait to have people to serve, right? The last thing that God was about chesed is to kill somebody else. That's the exact, the axorius is the exact opposite. So he had to fight his own nature. Well, I'm not this. I'm not an Akzam of Chesed. How can I go kill anybody? Fourth idea, right? That's my son. God is telling me to kill my son. Excuse me, right? Fifth idea. The guy in the next room is not just my son. He's a Jew. You want me to kill a Jew? The sixth idea. He's the last Jew. There's nobody after Yitzchak, was there? He's the last guy, you kill him. You know what I'm saying? That's the end of the Jewish race, right? Uh, so like, excuse me, what? Six different messianists that would bother anybody, you see? And Avram was hearing this at one shot. So did that get him? No. It was the seventh Israel that he went crazy with. What's that? Avraham Avinu was a brilliant individual. In fact, there are many people that say that Avraham Avinu is what gave the Chochmah to Egypt. Because he went down to Egypt, if you recall. That the Chochmah of mathematics, geometry, astronomy, many things came from Avraham Avinu. That's what the many people say that. And not only that, they say that Greek wisdom also originated from Avraham Avinu. Oh, you see, it's interesting. In fact, if you want to just as an interesting aside, you know, um, <clears throat> now nah, skip that. Um, the seventh was incredible. What was that? Because it didn't make sense. God said, In Yitzchak, you will, will be called your seed. Means your continuity will happen to Yitzchak, right? That's one prophecy. And then all of a sudden God appears and gives him another prophecy, kill him. Now, those two prophecies are incompatible. They're what's called mutually exclusive. If A is true, B cannot be true. And if B is true, then A cannot be true. You know, it's not possible for Yitzchak to be the continuity of the Jewish people and be dead at the same time. Nobody has ever seen that work. You see, so everyone said, this doesn't make sense. It's impossible. God is contradicting himself, you see. What that means is that God is appearing to me irrational, psychotic. This is God, excuse me, what's going on here? Uh, now, the other idea is, you know, we don't know why God does anything, that's unknown. But God does not contradict himself, you see, that's illogical, you see. Yet the motion was appearing to Avraham Avinu as illogical, 
So long and that's that and Avraham Avinu was one of the greatest philosophers, thinkers of logic. That was the worst thing. It made no sense. What kind of a god is this that's illogical? See, this is the worst thing that bothered Avraham Avinu. I see. Everything else he can handle. You see. So that so therefore the Messiah really that he couldn't handle an illogical request, which is impossible. Now, did God really do that? Of course not. The Moshe never told him to kill Yitzhak. He just said, bring him up as an Eilo. And then take him down. But he didn't mention take him down. So the logical assumption is if you tell him to bring him up as an Eilo, logically, he probably just finished the job. But God never said that. So God never contradicted himself. But he allowed Avraham Avinu to fool him, to fall into the trap and just follow the logical conclusion. Well, if I bring him up as an Eilo, as a sacrifice of Corbin, then obviously I'm going to kill him. He assumed that was the command, which of course it wasn't. Therefore, Avraham Avinu didn't know what to do. Uh, so Avraham Avinu, imagine, imagine a guy has that command, uh, you know, and, and it's his only real son from sorrow. Uh, that's his only one, you know. Imagine he's commanded by God to kill the guy. It's, we, we cannot even understand what, what type of story that was. But anyway, but Avraham Avinu said to himself, listen, I have no idea what's going on here. I mean, this is beyond my understanding. But I know one thing. I need to follow the dictates of God because in some way, God is right. In some way, it has to make sense. And therefore, what I will do is I will do the Ratzana Pere. Even if I don't understand it, I will fight my own critical analysis that this situation I'm being put in is impossible. Alpha became, I'll do it anyway. Now, therefore, that's the Nisoyim of the Akedah. Okay. The question is, why would God do that? <clears throat> well, this is the 10th Nisoyim, right? Why would God appear to Avraham Avinu illogical, irrational? You see? That's the question. And the answer is because it was an incredible chesed. What was that? Because God said, now I know you fear me, you see. Now, the question is, why did God do that? Well, one idea is like Rashi says, because the Jews will sin. So what's going to happen is the Sultan, the nations of the world being represented by their Malach, because every nation has a Malach. They're going to say, why do you love the Jews so much? Look what they're doing. They abandon you. They, they abandon you. They sin. Why do you love them so much? You know, get rid of them and take us. So the Bansham says, look at Avraham Avinu, that he is following my rights and my will, even though I'm completely irrational. So if, if Avraham Avinu fails to abandon me, to give me up, how can I give them up no matter what they do? And Rashi says, so what the Bansham gave is Avraham Avinu and all the Jewish people an unbelievable defense that no matter what they sin, you see, God will not abandon the Jewish people. However, what really comes out of this is something else. What the Barashim says, because you listened to me, even though I was irrational and I was illogical, that therefore the Jews, if they ever ask me to be illogical and irrational, which is the Hanhogas Ayichot, I will grant them. You see, in other words, what happened by Avram is he provided the Jews with the merit that if we say the Barashim listened, we can't stand this prosecutor. We're finished. We are asking you to go into the, the activities, the behavior called Anagas which to us is irrational because nobody knows how it works. 
for instance, it's a great example. If you understand what how illogical Dhanam Sayyikha is, what's the classic example of Dhanam Sayyikha? The Holocaust. The Holocaust made no sense because it's one thing to get punished. It's another thing where the Nazis in Machimon take your skin for the, you know, for lampshades, then take your fat, and take everything about you. I mean, what, what kind of way is, what is this? Makes no sense, you see, in that way. And not only that, how does a father subject his kids to this? Uh, the Holocaust is part of Hanukkah Sayyichud. We have no understanding of how this can help us do the deacon. But it is. But the merit of that is from Avraham Avinu. Since you listen to me, even though I appear to you illogical, then the Jews have a right to ask me to go into Hanukkah Sayyichud, which looks illogical, which of course is not. They have a right to ask that. And therefore, they need to blow the shofar. And what is a shofar? It is the original ram that the Avraham Avinu substituted for Yitzchak. It's the ram's horn, you see. And that's part of the, the, the ram. Remember it says, Kachis Benoi? That he took a ram uh, instead of his, uh, the kid, uh, instead of Yitzchak, and so on. So they have the right. So that's the mechanism that we can blow shofar based on the Akedah. And that's why we read the Akedah, okay? We read the Akedah on Rosh Hashanah. Because the merit of Shofar has to do with what our Lord did. That's Rosh Hashanah, you see? I've now gone through a whole different drama about what Rosh Hashanah is, what the essence of Rosh Hashanah really is. It's all about the Tikkun to come back and that's the real judgment. And therefore, it's not just individuals, but everything. Why are animals judged? Why? And the answer to that is they're not judged. They're judged, where do I want to put these things in order to help the Jews do the deacon? You see? God can say, okay, I don't like what the, Spain is doing, whatever, right? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, bring, I'm going to get all the locusts which hang out in Africa, right? And they're going to change from grasshopper to locusts which, by the way, is a real transformation. And they're gonna be carried by the winds over the Mediterranean. And guess what? They're gonna land in, in, in Spain or Israel or whatever, Mediterranean, Mediterranean country. You see? Well, 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 so the, the, it, it's not a judgment on the grasshoppers, the locusts. It was a reassignment. They were judged in terms of the tikkun process, not for guilt or innocence, but what do I do with them to advance the process? That's why everything is judged, because everything has changed in terms of how is everything now, based on what the level of, of spirituality that the Jews did, how is everything going to be changed in order to now advance the process after the Jews have not done their job? What do I do now? So everything is taken into consideration. You see, that's how global, this is not even global, it's universal. It's far beyond what we can comprehend, where everything in creation is judged. Okay, what do I do with them? And where do I put them to make sure that the deacon goes on? It's a process which is so beyond our understanding that we, and God does it in an instant nanosecond. That's how quick he does, you see. Now, what do we do? How do we approach Hashanah? We approach based on that, that what does God really want from a Jew? Of course he wants us to do mitzvahs and to do tshuva and so on, you see. But essentially, what does he want? I will tell you what he wants. And that's the, I, I feel, is the key defense. It's not so much, well, I won't do this sin and that sin. Of course we do that. No question. 
because that's in many ways contributing to the bad news. But the real news is, where is your focus? Is your focus on materialism, on power, on pleasure, in the classic traps of mankind? Or is your focus on trying to get close to God, trying to be more spiritual? You see, it's not the focus like I say, well, I, you know, I, I did this sin, I'm not going to do this sin again. It's, of course it's true, but that's not the focus. Because the tikkun is not focused on, on you know, it's focused on, on the specific avera. It's focused on where are you in terms of the tikkun. Uh, therefore, the essential concept of tikkun is where are you in terms of your direction? What are your priorities? You see, so really what a person has to say to himself, is okay, I need to get involved in Judaism. I need to get involved in Torah, learn more Torah. I need to get involved where I see God and the spirituality that God requires and the whole concept of Tikkun, because think about it, Tikkun simply means bringing God back. That's Ruchnius, that's spirituality. This is what I need to do. So you begin making what's called a Cheshben HaNefesh. Okay, what are those things I can leave? What are those things I still have to focus and so on? In other words, what you begin to think about is you need to prioritize your life toward a spiritual dimension and not what the physical dimension where everybody is focused. You see, that to me is the greatest defense you have, you see. And the more you think about that, the more you change in ruchness, and it may be hard and so on, and you're going to have to give up things to do it. But in the end, that's what it's all about. That's really what's called the bottom line, you see. And as I, uh, as I would say, we're very close to the Mashiach, very close, you know. So the last thing you want to say to yourself, you know, and Mashiach comes, and all of a sudden, once Mashiach comes, there's no more free will. It's over, because you see God. I mean, there's no test anymore. That's why the angels have no free will, because God is right in front of them. You see, what free will do they really have, you see? So when the Mashiach comes specifically, Mashiach and David, although it's even true in Mashiach and Yosef, time and so on, uh, free will is basically over. So whatever you do now is compelled and, and, and so on. Uh, the last thing you want to say to yourself or realize is, you know, I heard a lecture from Rabbi Kessin that he said I should have prioritized, right? And I didn't do it. This is bad news. Why not listen to him? Now, don't listen to me, right? Listen to God. Because uh, this is what Rosh Hashanah is really trying to get you to do. You need to prioritize your life uh, in the direction of Ruchnia, spirituality, and getting close to God, and so on. And, and there are things you're going to have to do to do it. You're going to have to give up things, like I said. You know, you're going to have to set aside different things, schedules, or whatever. But this is the bottom line, you know. And that's what God wants, and He's the boss. You know, He decides. And remember, <clears throat> We're not talking here about, you know, uh, you know uh, a new job here. We are talking about an existence in the future world for eternity. That, that's a big stake. You know, we don't even know what it means to live forever. You know what I'm saying? Because even after a hundred billion years, there's still another infinity to go. That's the interesting thing about forever. You know, it just never ends. You know, I, you, know you, you live that life. It's a hundred billion years. And how much more can I have? Wait a minute, there's another eternity after this. It never ends, you know. That's the states. The states are eternal existence. But it's not even only that. 
its eternal existence, or rather I should say infinite bliss eternally. That's what it is. <clears throat> Whatever God has stored up for us is beyond our imagination. And it's an infinite bliss. And it goes on forever, which is incredible, you know? If somebody told you, you know, I want you to do a certain thing, but the reward of that, right, is you're gonna have, uh, you know, hundred million dollars. You, you, you'd run out and do it right away, right? So if somebody tells you, hey, the reward for this is infinite bliss, which we cannot even comprehend, right? Eternally, never ends. Wow. What are you asking for? What's the price, <clears throat> right? And the answer, the price is, do my will. Get involved with God because he's waiting, you see. Somebody once asked, where is God? Where is he? And the answer is, wherever you let him in. That's really what it is. It's not that God's, it's not that you gotta drag him in. You know, he's waiting, he's gotta, he's gotta uh, send God an invitation, you know, invitation. No, no, no. Uh, God is clamoring to get into your life. You just have to let him in. You, I shouldn't say you, we are the obstacle, because I include myself. We are the obstacle to God's presence in our lives, not him, you see. God has never said, I will decide. No, he, God doesn't limit himself, we limit him. That's uh, a very important idea. That means that we have the control if he enters our lives or not. We are the ones totally in control, and he just waits, you know. And another idea which is important, look how much God wants to get into our lives. They have 30 days of Elul, right? He warns us, right? And then if that's not enough, then Rashani judges, and then he gives the appeal process for 10 days. You know what I'm saying? And then there's even more, which I'll talk about next week, that God is desperately trying to get in to every Jew's personal life. And see, you know. So when you think about it, wow, I mean, God is so desperate, you know, I have to have Rahmanus on him. You know, I have to have mercy on God, never, you know, in some way, you know, and so on, you know. So I urge everybody to think about, you know, uh, the Shia, and to think about, you know, the consequences of what Russia is. And Russia is an incredible gift. It allows us to think about our life, because I tell you, without Russia, nobody would think about changing. You'd go on for the rest of your life, right? And the only time the wake-up call, the only time you ever have a wake-up call, right, is when you're lying in a coffin. Right? And that's a bad time on wake-up call. Because guess what? You ain't waking up. I see, this is the problem with wake-up calls after your death. <clears throat> you see? So the truth is, Rosh Hashanah is a tremendous chesed. You see? Because without that, we'd never, we'd never stop. We'd never think. We'd never make a cheshman, as they say, or some kind of reckoning, you see? So at least for our sake, Rosh Hashanah stops us and says, wait a minute, you know? You need to make a reckoning. And if I, got, if I have to hit you over the head with it, you're going to do it. You see? And thank God for that, because then we can think about it uh, in terms of what we want to do. You see? So therefore, I certainly urge everybody to really think in terms of their lives and, uh, and really try to alter whatever you can. Make a uh, learn more Torah, because Torah is where it's at. It's the greatest of all mitzvahs. Learn more Torah, go to more shurim. And there are shurim around. There are many shurim around that you can go. If you really want to go, the problem is we push off shurim I gotta do this, I gotta visit the bubba, I gotta see my hand click like that. Well, it, yeah, it's all important, yeah. But the problem is, Torah learning is too easily pushed aside, very easily, you see. And therefore, but there are many shown around, and you really have to take advantage of that. Let's put it this way, you need to commit. 
If you commit, it'll happen. You don't commit, it'll never happen. You see? And therefore, that's what you have to do. Like, you're really serious about it. Okay. So I really hope everybody got the message. And now that we know what Word Rosh Hashanah is all about, really, really what it's all about. And if we all do tshuva, right, uh, you'd be surprised. The machine will come, mamish out of nowhere, and, and finally the tikkun process will be complete and the world will never be the same. It will just be an incredible place to live. Thank you. Sure. Sure.